Amen. Let's pray to El Shaddai, the all-sufficient God. Thank you, Lord, that you have done what we couldn't do, that you were sufficient for our salvation, for our redemption, and for our sanctification. And now, Lord, as we open your word, we pray you'd help us to hear, help us to understand, and help us receive your word. And Lord, uh, I want to lift up our missionaries, the Hiskies, as they travel, especially their health, Lord. Um, I pray for John that his oxygen levels would stay up. They'd find out why they're low. And, and for Nikki um, that's coming up surgery for her, Lord. Uh, and all the other things that are unmentioned in the congregation uh, needs. You are the sufficient God, the all-sufficient God. And we thank you that you care, that you hear our prayers. So be with us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And can, children can be dismissed for Children's Church. Your teacher will meet you in the back. Uh, just a couple of announcements. If you haven't seen inside the children's room, uh, Brittany finished with the painting in there. And uh, so after the service, just pop your head in there. And it, it, she finished it beautifully. And also the new daily breads are out. So from March, April, May, can you believe it's almost spring, <laughs> is on the table out there. So pick up one of the new daily breads for devotions. Uh, I was with the, the Hiskies stayed with us for a few days. It was a blessing. They're the ones who started the mission in Guinea-Bissau that we support, that we helped to build the radio tower. And just an update um, for you, the, we were the ones that purchased the huge, big, huge, humongous generator to run that thing. It's the biggest radio station in Guinea-Bissau. It reaches one million unreached Muslims. And with the, with the local languages, the local pastors run it and do all the programming. They sing songs. They tell about hygiene and, and agriculture, which that country, that if you didn't know, Guinea-Bissau is like number two lowest, next to the bottom in per capita income. Uh, when I was there, I was just asked, why are there no old people? Everybody's young. And the brother that was with me said, they don't live that long because of malnutrition. And so um, it's, it's really great to see what's happening there. Now their, their passion is to get repeaters in both ends of the nation so that they can reach out into other nations too. So um, we're, we'll think about how we can support that as well. Today we are in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we'll be doing verses 12 to 20. So in honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read this passage? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 to 20. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. God is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know 
that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her. For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Amen? Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So we are in the middle of the Apostle Paul's um, corrective instruction for the church in Corinth. He's addressing one issue after another. Um, they seem to think that they were spiritual giants, but there were so many ways in which their behavior didn't line up with the message of the gospel. Paul's already addressed the specific situation of sexual immorality that the church hadn't dealt with. But now he addresses sexual immorality in general in this passage today. If you're a guest with us, we just work our way through the scripture. So we try to, uh, um, in that way, we don't end up avoiding certain topics. So if you're going, oh, what are they talking about today? <laughs> you happen to have joined us uh, on this particular topic because we work right through the scriptures. Now, since the city of Corinth had temp a thousand temple prostitutes, one particular temple had a thousand temple prostitutes, the temptation for the new believers to compromise back into their old lifestyle was really strong. You know, uh, years ago, we had a full-size scale uh, reproduction of the tabernacle. And it's uh, it was where... Um, uh, what's the name of that? Natural Grocers is today. That was an empty lot. And we put up the tabernacle there and we put up a big sign and we invited people to go through and we would go through explaining how it was used and then come, come back out explaining how it all pictured Christ. And in the talk, I would always end up mentioning original sin. And um, it was interesting to see that so many uh, the, of the people that went through kind of snickered when I said that. And I said, what, what's funny? R original sin, you know, sex. And I thought, well, why do they think that? What? Did, did the church miscommunicate that message or is that something rampant in the culture? Um, and even some Christians would respond that way. And so I realized that either the church at large or the culture is given this wrong interpretation of, or impression of, of what the Bible tells us about sexual relationships. Adam and Eve were told in the Garden of Eden to be fruitful and multiply. Sex is a gift from God when it's in the confines of marriage. But sexual morality is a sin like any other, except that it affects our body and soul, as we're going to see in this passage. The problem for Christians is that who commit sexual immorality is that this sin is a picture that the relationship of husband and wife is a is a picture of our relationship with the Lord. So sexual sexual immorality is is 
compared to idolatry in the Old Testament. In other words, we're being unfaithful to Christ when we would uh, do such a thing because it's a picture of that sacred union we have with Christ. And for those who are single, fornication pictures a careless disregard for our commitment to Christ and ignoring the fact that that other person is made in the image of God. For the Christian, there's no such thing as casual sex. You know, you hear this thing, friends with mutual benefits and that kind of thing. There is no such thing because that physical intimacy within marriage is, is this beautiful image of our commitment to one another and a sharing of our very souls. Verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. This maxim, all things are lawful for me in your Bible, it's probably in quotes because it sounds like this is what they were quoting in the church in Corinth and that they had taken that idea of grace and, and gone way too far with it. So it, it was probably derived in a teaching from the Apostle Paul in regards to Jewish laws, Jewish worship and ceremonial laws. And, and since Jesus kept the law for us, the law doesn't add anything to our salvation. We're free to be led by the Spirit. And being freed from the law, believer can, in Jesus can do anything. Nevertheless, as believers, we avoid evil and we obey the leading of the Holy Spirit. Later in this letter, Paul tells us not to do anything that will stumble a brother. So that, in 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 fact, confines the freedom. It puts boundaries on our freedom. We are under the law of love. Augustine's maxim was love and do what thou wilt. Paul wrote that love fulfills the law. And this love, of course, is the biblical love, agape, that expects nothing in return. It's not gratifying our passions but it's rather a demonstration of the love of Christ. Paul clarifies how this should be applied by adding, but I will not be dominated by anything. In other words, is that thing that I'm considering God's will? Will it dominate me and thereby put me back in slavery to sin and, and cause me to neglect the great command to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? Our freedom is freedom to walk in the spirit instead of the flesh. The world can't do that because they are in bondage to the flesh. So when we say we're free from civil and worship laws of Moses, it's freedom to walk with God and do his will rather than our own. We're freed from the bondage of sin over our lives. Verse 13, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Paul gives an example of something that can dominate us and does dominate many people's lives, something we all experience. Food can become a God to us. I don't know about you, but if you've ever, if you've experienced a fast, and I'm not talking about 12 hours, I'm talking about a few days, three or four days a week, Fasting, 
you realize how much food dominates our thought life. It's it's a really it really convicted me because I did when before I ever fasted I th- I did, had no clue and then all of a sudden all I can think about is food you know oh I want some chips and salsa and, you know <laughs> craving it uh, but we are freed from that kind of bondage verse thirteen food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food. So he's giving us this example. You know, I recently heard some people say they moved so and so such and such a city because they are foodies. Have you ever heard of foodies? Foodies are people that choose where they live because of the restaurants that are there. Not because of the church they can attend or the ministry that they can be part of, but for the food that they can eat. Food is the focus of their lives. I had a yellow lab that was that way. He was totally, totally fixated on food, and some people are. The stomach and food are temporal. They will pass. How short-sighted to fix our desires there. It's like settling for an anthill when Everest lies before us. The Corinthians would say the body was made for sex and sex for the body. But God did not create our bodies to be given over to sexual immorality because it can put us in bondage just like food can. He created the body for himself. Certainly there's pleasure and intimacy within the boundary of marriage, but take it outside of God's boundary and it wreaks havoc on your soul, enslaving you to destructive habitual thinking and behavior. You know, survey after survey tells us that the most sexually satisfied people are those who live in a lifelong monogamous relationship. You know, we're all into surveys and polls and everything, but that one we somehow conveniently avoid. (laughs) But that poll exposes Satan's lie for what it is, the path to destruction. A few years ago, I was... Um, we have a bell tower on the church. When when Sedona was about to pass away, she asked that instead of flowers be given for her memorial service, that the money be used to buy a bell. And it's still on the tower in front of the church here. And um, I and on Christmas time, we put up um, uh, lights on the on the cross so that it'll stand out up there. And so I was up on the tower, and it's pretty high, and maybe it's about 60 feet down to the street, and I'm hanging onto the cross as I put the lights on it because if you fall, it is a long way down, and it's cement. And I thought, as I was doing it, I thought, yep, sexual temptation is a weakness And if I don't tightly cling to the cross, it is a long way down. I see too many cases where sexual desire has destroyed families, relationships, and churches. The pastor I first worked under, the professor um, of my seminary classes, both brought down by this enslaving sin. Paul brings up food and sex as they can be two of Satan's most effective tools to make us ineffective for God's kingdom. 
If he can re-enslave us to sin, we won't be freeing other slaves from sin. Verse 14, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. So while we should care for these bodies as the temple of the Holy Spirit and as a vessel for his use, to live for the body is short-sighted. God will raise these bodies even after they have returned to the elements. That's how he made man in the first place, right? From the dust of the ground. People ask me about cremation. They say, well, if God's going to raise us up, I think I should be, uh, I don't think I should uh, have my body cremated. Well, if God made us from the dust, it isn't any problem for him to reassemble the dust, Amen. Each of us consists of enough potassium for one shot from a toy cannon, enough fat for six bars of soap, enough iron for a medium-sized nail, enough sulfur to delouse a dog, and enough lime to whitewash a chicken coop, enough magnesium for one dose of medicine, and enough phosphorus for a few boxes of matches. Did you know that? I often thought if, if evolution was true, you could just mix it all up and shake it long enough and it would turn into a human, you know? Add water and stir, right? <laughs> but Paul is making a point that raising these bodies upon his return means there's something about these elements that we consist of that are gonna go on into the next age. There's something about the human body that will go on into eternity through these though these elements temporarily return to the earth. Perhaps that's because these bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Ecclesiastes tells us we all go back to the dust. Paul tells us that God will raise that dust in a transformed body like that of Jesus' glorious resurrected body. And nothing is too hard for God. Amen? Really? You believe that? Amen? Amen? There we go. <laughs> Think of all the saints who were burned at the stake or buried at sea. Will God find it difficult to raise them? How powerful is our God? All powerful. The body is our earthly vehicle. Peter calls it our tent. I like that expression. As we get older, our tent starts to wear out. The zipper doesn't work very well. And the flap is starting to, come, seams are coming apart. Our soul and body is our earthly vehicle. And when Christ returns, our transformed bodies will rise to meet our spirits in the air. Verse 15 and 16. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. Lewis Smedes, a, a Christian ethicist, ethicist and theologian, put it really well when he wrote, there is more to sex than meets the eye or excites the body. There's no such thing as casual sex, no matter how casual people are about it. No one can take sex out at night and put it away until he wants to play with it again. Nobody can go to bed with someone and leave his soul parked outside. 
our bodies are sanctified for the Lord and become his dwelling place. Should these bodies then be joined to a prostitute? Paul's probably referring to the temple prostitutes that uh, served the pagan temples in Corinth. But the principle is true for any illicit encounter. The two become one in sexual union. Is that the picture that we would portray to the world? You know, sometimes one, one of Satan's biggest lies is no one's ever going to know. I tell you, that's one of his biggest lies. Because sin, the scripture says, be sure your sin will find you out. Is that the oneness our new spirit would ever desire? When a Christian man considers hiring a prostitute, he's forgetting that his body is dedicated to God as an instrument of righteousness. Would he then use the body of a desperate woman which houses an eternal soul who is someone's daughter for a moment of carnal pleasure? Sexual union is a unique expression of self-disclosure and self-commitment. If the body is to be raised to an immortal body, unlike the rest of this fallen material world that will perish forever, this member of the body of Christ joined to a pagan temple prostitute should be something that's unthinkable. Perhaps and it was some expression of the way they distorted grace, but it, it sounds un, unthinkable, but it's almost as common today in our culture as it was in the Corinthian culture. Our culture acts as if it's no big deal, but it is a soul issue. Verse 19 says our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and in verse 15 that it's a member of Christ. What Paul is saying is really absolutely revolutionary, absolutely radical. Our bodies are the place where God has chosen to live, and the very thing he's chosen to make a part of himself he bound himself so tightly to us, even our bodies, because he wants to be with us, for us to be his and for him to be ours forever. No other religion would ever dare say anything even remotely close to that. God's gods, small g, live in temples, not in human bodies. Gods keep their distance. They don't wrap themselves up with people, especially not with their bodies. But this one does. Our bodies have tremendous value and they cannot be treated casually because they matter eternally. The other extreme, of course, is the ridiculous claim that we are God, which is the ultimate expression of a fallen ego. Verse 17 but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Our union is with Christ. Our oneness is in him. Marriage pictures our union with Christ, our intimacy with him, the desire to please one another, to live for one another in faithfulness. To then have intimacy with someone else is breaking our vow to be faithful. And that's why the Old Testament refers to idolatry as adultery. It's unfaithfulness to Jesus as Lord. Believers take Jesus with them wherever they go. How then could we do such a thing? 
verse 18 and 19a, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? In other words, run. The, the Greek tense of this command means to make it your habitual habit when faced with sexual temptation to run. In other words, we will be tempted, and the response should always be to run for your life. The Corinthian culture believed sexual behavior didn't affect your soul, but, God, but Paul is saying it's an offense against your very own personality. You know, Joseph in the Old Testament set an example for us when Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him. He called it a great wickedness and a sin against God. Why is sexual sin to be especially shunned? Most other sins do not as directly represent our commitment to, of faithfulness to belong to Jesus, but rather our moral choices that we know are opposed to God's will. But when we engage the body in a sin like sexual immorality, whether adultery or homosexuality or fornication, the temple of the body is defiled. It's comparable to bringing an idol into the Jewish temple. It asked the Holy Spirit to depart, for he can only dwell in holy space and will not share it with that which is vile. Such acts sin against our own body. Christians have, as Romans 6 tells us, dedicated the parts of our body for God, for his use alone. Our body is the temple of God and therefore sexual immorality is to defile his temple. It would be like taking some unclean thing into the temple in Jerusalem. The temple would then need to be cleansed by the rituals prescribed in Leviticus for it to be used again for sacred purposes. And that, that's what's behind the legend of Hanukkah. But let me make it clear that we're speaking about believers in Jesus in this passage. The world will do these things without hesitation and laud them as freedom and natural it is natural for fallen man, though the negative consequences to the soul are the same. There's no need for us to wag our finger at them. They're acting according to their nature, the same nature we once lived in, and even now tries to draw us back. But the Holy Spirit convicts all people of sin. And until they yield to his conviction, our finger wagging will only annoy them. It's more helpful to share your testimony of how Jesus changed your life, how you found sin was never fully satisfying and always needing more. But then how Jesus met that need in your heart and transformed your thinking and your actions. The last half of 19 and verse 20, you are not your own for you were bought with a price. So... Glorify God in your body. Now, this is the sixth time in this, I think in, in, even in this chapter that Paul has asked, do you not know? It's as if he was saying, I taught you these truths, so don't you remember what I taught you? Weren't you listening? Don't you realize these things are true? You don't belong to yourself. Jesus 
purchased us with his own blood that we might be his dwelling place and we have no right to defile it. Think if you built a room onto your house, you know, you, you go to the architect, you plan this special room in your house where you can pray and read the word. Now, when I lived in Texas for a short time and, and uh, I went to one store and was sharing Christ with the man and he said, come here, I want to show you something. He brought me into a back room of his store that, was, that he had built as a prayer room. It was really cool because it had a, a little like altar there with the Bible open and it was just, I thought, wow, this is nice. This would be nice to have something like this in our home. But imagine building that for yourself and then walking to the room and see it plastered with pornography. That's kind of what we're talking about here. It's a weak analogy because we didn't die for that room, but to be made that perfect prayer space like Jesus did for our spirits. Or imagine this church and we uh, do the renovations that we've done at great expense to make the sanctuary just right for worship and then we find out we come to it and it's being used as a brothel. That might give us a vague idea of what we do when we use our bodies for this kind of sexual sinful behavior. Since we were purchased by the precious blood of Jesus, we're to glorify God with our bodies. And that's why Paul tells us to do all for the glory of God. Our speech and our actions should all glorify God. And the only way to do that is to walk in step with the Holy Spirit. We need to become attentive to his direction and have our desires become one with his. That was the example Jesus set for us. None of us live in obedience to the extent that he did. However, the daily work of the Holy Spirit in us should be increasingly sanctifying our thoughts and our actions, transforming us into Christ-likeness. We should see that change taking place from day to day. One man in the Bible study, actually, he's here this morning, truly took the word to heart. And he began to change, let the Holy Spirit transform his behavior. And after a while, his wife asked him, who are you? Because you're not like the man I married. You're completely different. He had more joy. He was kinder. He was gentler. In other words, the fruit of the Spirit had become more noticeable to those who saw him, and not only in public, but in private as well. You know, that's the real test. You can act one way in public, but when you're alone with your spouse or whoever you live with regularly, they see the real you. The Holy Spirit was working through the word to convict him of sin and then help him to walk in the spirit. And that is the freedom we're talking about. That's the joyful, disciplined, exciting life that God has for us all. Eternal purpose and meaning are ours when we live in the spirit. Recently, our brother Luke taught through the book of Hosea. God told Hosea to marry a woman of doubtful reputation, and he was obedient, and he loved her. But 
she would go away and find pleasure in the arms of another man. He would find her and forgive her and take her back again and again. And then she left for a long time. And when he finally found her, she was on the slave block. She had to sell herself to pay her debts. She had reached the very bottom. As the beginning, the bidding began, she could hear a familiar voice cry out, Five shekels! As the bidding went on, she heard him again, Ten shekels! And now she sees him. It's Hosea. But why? Why would he buy her back? Maybe he wants to abuse and humiliate her for all the heartache she's caused him. And then the final offer, Hosea yells out, 15 shekels, which is half the price of a healthy slave. Sold. He comes to claim her instead of a rebuke. There's a gentle voice. Let's go home. Let's go home. Brothers and sisters, like Gomer, we weren't even worth the full price of a slave. For we damaged our souls with selfish pleasure, selfish sinful pleasures, but we were bought back with a much higher price by the very blood and body of Jesus. And when we are finally claimed, he doesn't meet us with rebuke. He just says, let's go home. Let me live in you. Let me make you, your body, my home so that you can be in my home forever. Amen. Since those wondrous truths are ours, we should glorify God in our bodies. Amen. And that's the only right response when we consider all that God has done for us. All we do should be for the glory of God. We should rise each day praying for opportunities to glorify our gracious God and then watch for those opportunities and experience the joy of the Lord as he graciously works through our lives. Amen. Jill, would you lead us in a closing song? Let's stand and sing together and then I'll give the benediction.